0: Welcome to episode number two of the Five Reasons Podcast. My name is Chris Whittingham. Joining me, as always, is Ethan Skolnick. And today, Ethan, you discovered a bit of serendipity when it comes to wanting to tackle a theme on the podcast— It surrounds AFC Championship or generally NFL Championship weekend. The conference championship games will feature the New England Patriots and the Jacksonville Jags. And on the other side, the Minnesota Vikings in one of the great games of the year and the Philadelphia Eagles. But we wanted to get into why the Miami Dolphins aren't in this weekend, in this game, And it just happens to coincide. We're publishing this on a Wednesday, January 17th, 2018. And Ethan, exactly 25 years ago was the last time the Miami Dolphins have played in this game. Every AFC team but four have played in the game. The Dolphins are in that group of four with sort of the also-rans in the AFC and you discovered this, and, and you and you wanted to tackle it.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing uh, how long ago this was, and you have to go back twenty five years now, as of today, where the Dolphins played the Bills in the AFC Championship game, lost twenty nine to ten. That was during the Bills' run of four straight AFC Championship games, all of which they won to advance to the Super Bowl, all of which the Bills then lost. But the Dolphins were in a position at that point where they were still, you know, still had Dan Marino. Still felt that they were a competitive franchise. Don Shula was still the coach. This is how long ago this was. And if you take a look at that game, just, to, again, to give it a sense of how long ago this was, you know some of the players that were in that game, just to give you Mark Duper catching a touchdown pass from, from Dan Marino. Uh, Thurman Thomas, still a Bill at that point before he had come over to the Dolphins catching a touchdown pass. From Jim Kelly, uh, some of the other names in there, obviously Bruce Smith, Kenneth Davis. For the Dolphins, uh, you know, Bobby Humphrey was on the team at that point. That's, that's again, uh, I know I'm dating myself there to go back. I don't but... even know
0: who Bobby Humphrey is.
1: <laughs> <laughs> A running back, Pete Stojanovic was the Dolphin kicker at that stage. Was and it late, Uwe Von Shaman? Uh, no, it was not. It, it, don't go back quite that far. That was the 80s. Uh, and Reggie Roby, the late Reggie Roby, was the Dolphin punter. So, again, this is how long ago this was for the Miami Dolphins, 25 years. They talk a lot about their history, we always go back to 72. But, again, it, it p- sort of puts in perspective how little has been accomplished to not even reach, forget the Super Bowl again, just to reach the AFC championship game, to be one of the last two teams standing in the AFC. And here's some numbers, which uh, we went back and looked, Chris, and, and just to give some perspective on this, you mentioned only three other teams in the in the AFC have not made the championship game since that time. Those three other teams are the Bengals, who we know have had their difficulty getting to the playoffs and in recent years winning a playoff game. The Browns, we know that's not a history you want to be associated with. Right. And the Texans, who did not exist until 2002, but have actually made more playoff appearances than the Dolphins of late. And to go over the list, since the last time that the Dolphins made an AFC championship game, the Patriots have made 13. This will be number 13 in 25 years. The Steelers, nine. The Broncos and Colts, five. The Ravens, four. The Jets and Jags, three. The Raiders, Chargers, and Titans 2, and the Chiefs and Bills have made one piece. All of those franchises since the Dolphins last made an AFC Championship game. So what we wanted to do today was, and I, this show probably could be called 135 Reasons, <laughs> <laughs> but, but we, we, without, without depressing everybody too much, to try to put in some perspective over the last 25 years, go over the five reasons that we think are most significant, in terms of the Dolphins not getting to the AFC championship game. So I will let you start with the first.
0: Yeah, let's go and get straight into it. So reason number one is really the lack of a long-term vision or continuity, if you like. Because I think one of the things that gets associated with the good franchises in the league, and particularly a franchise like Pittsburgh that's had three coaches in a period of 50 years, You look at them going from Bill Cowher to Mike Tomlin. That covers the entirety of coaches in this era that we're talking about from 93 until now. You look at the Patriots. Obviously, they're sort of headed up by Belichick and Brady. And they're most known for having a stable period of leadership, a coherent vision that which they're constantly drafting to and signing to. And I think the Dolphins have constantly been searching for something that works. Now, there is kind of this fine line, right? Because a lot of people criticize Steven Ross for holding on to Jeff Ireland for too long. So there is a fine line between trying to continue in something for the sake of continuity and continuing in something that doesn't work. And so the Dolphins have just have never been able to find the right people to put in charge, to be the head coach and the GM for 15 years. And then, because they're constantly chopping and changing, they never actually end up with a roster that is reflective 1-53 through 53 of one person or one group strategy.
1: Yeah, I know that's a huge part of it, and I know that's something uh, I definitely want to cover over the course of this pod because that has been a big problem. We've seen Dolphin players have success elsewhere but not in Miami, and a a large part of that is because all the changes in terms of the regime and the style and the the way that coaches want to play, the way that GMs sort of envision their rosters, obviously that was a a big issue – when you take a look at, say, going from in 2007 with a, a Cam Cameron, Randy Mueller regime that wanted, you know, small fast guys, and then you go in 2008, and all of those guys are irrelevant because Bill Parcells, Jeff Ireland, Tony Sperano wanted big guys, um, all, you know, all across the lines and and on the outside, and that that has that problem has repeated itself over and over over the Dolphins past. Uh, 25 years. You mentioned stability and and sort of a, a clear vision. Again, if you look at the teams in the AFC, you mentioned the Patriots, you know, and the Steelers. And again, 22 AFC championship appearances between the two of them. Both of those teams have had stable ownership. And you know, w- with Bob Kraft, and then with the Steelers, with the Rooney family, and then the Broncos with five appearances, and and the late Pat Bowen, uh obviously ran the show there for a long time. I feel
0: like the Colts might be the counterexample to what we're talking about. I'm not sure. When I think of stable ownership, I don't think of the Colts. You don't think of— I don't don't think think of the Ursae's when I think think of of stable ownership.
1: That would be the exception. And the Ravens have gotten there uh, under a couple of ownership They have that whole Peyton Manning uh, thing. Four times. Yeah, the Peyton Manning thing certainly helped, and that's going to be one of our topics, too, is is obviously uh, having— the quarterback is critical here. But I, I think if you look at the Dolphins, uh, again, three owners during this period of time, correct? Because it would be – if you go to, if you date it back to, to 1993, that would be the Robbie family, then Huizenga, and then starting in 2008 when he bought half of the team and then and then bought the rest, Steve Ross. So the Dolphins have had three owners during that period of time. And I think if you take a look at the ownership styles of – say let's just look at Heisinga and Ross – in particular, both have sort of struggled in football and both have obviously had tremendous success in business, but both have struggled to sort of find the right confidant, to find the right person to be a guide. You know, this was an issue with Haizenga, if you remember the whole Dan Marino fiasco back in 2000 I guess it would be 2004 right where where there was this he was trying to find somebody that he could trust and so he turned to Marino you know after playing some golf with Dan and all the rest and didn't sort of give a sense to Dan of what the job was supposed to be or if Dan really wanted to do it and again that's repeated itself over and over where we've heard about so many people who've been in these two owners ears and you know remember the Carl Peterson situation Eric Mangini uh, was you know sort of another one who was guiding this particular owner and then Mike Tannenbaum and then Tannenbaum ends up becoming the general manager so it, it seems like the two owners that have been prominent during this period of time Heizinga and then Ross they sort of guided by the last person that they talk to and that person uh, then eventually changes
0: Right. And then they end up changing the overall strategy of everything and, and, and the people that are under them. And it ends up being mixed messages. We, we I, I feel like it took, I would say Steve Ross now has it figured out. I think Steve Ross is a quality owner now, but what was the learning curve for him? It was years. It, first off, it started with the glitz and the glamour and all that stuff, which I didn't particularly mind, but it isn't exactly what the Patriots are doing. And then You have the bizarre management structure. You have the changing of the coach but not the GM, the GM but not the coach, and you have various direct reports to who knows where, and there's internal strife. And then I I do think that even if you don't think that Mike Tannenbaum is the right person and hasn't done enough to, to prove himself in terms of making football decisions, his history with the Jets is a bit checkered, although his Jets did get to this game that we're talking about right now, so you can at least praise him for that when you're talking about at least handing the keys over, even if you don't trust Mike Tannenbaum, at least it's now it now makes sense top to bottom what they're doing in terms of Tannenbaum with Chris Greer below him and Adam Gates the head coach. It does seem like they work together well. When Adam Gase wants to have J.I. traded, he's not met by resistance at his front office. They inherently trust Adam Gase and they, and they execute his vision. And I think in the end, that trade might have worked out in the Dolphins' favor, at least in terms of Adam Gase wants to get back to what he wants to do, and Kenyon Drake fit that more than JJ. That's what we're talking about. Even if it comes with questions, at least there's a top to bottom strategy that seems to work. But as we're talking about ownership, it took them. It took him a while to figure it out. I don't think Heisinga ever did figure it out because you hear the stories about Nick Saban, where Wayne Heisinger was all. And Levittard has had a few of these stories recently, where he's talked about how you know Nick Saban was always told by Heisinga, "If you ever want to leave and go back to college because you don't like this, then you're free to." And I'm never going to criticize you for it. And I feel like that always kind of has Nick Saban with one foot out the door in some respects. He allowed Jimmy Johnson, after Jimmy Johnson had this aha moment, he offered him the idea of only coach road games, which is insane, right? Even if you are being a very good friend, and that is a very good friend, to go and say that to somebody because you want to keep him, that's not exactly someone who has his finger on the pulse of how exactly to run an NFL franchise. You go back to what happened with Parcells, where he gets kind of caught in the limbo of the change in the ownership group, uh, he was loyal to just Izinga didn't want to work for Ross and eventually that whole thing blows up and well Parzels... he was given well he was given that in his contract Chris right too. I mean that, right, that exactly. which I mean
1: was basically if there was an ownership change that he could bolt with all of his money and and you mentioned the Jimmy Johnson one I mean I, me- I remember being at the press conference where they flew over to Naples to fly in Dave Wonstadt to be the assistant head coach which was like okay Jimmy all right if you 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 have to coach Ro- okay if, you, if you're going to coach all the games but you can day trade from upstairs, and Dave can basically <laughs> run the team, which is what happened in that last year. Which is that Jimmy was playing the stock market and playing with his uh, his Yorkie Buttercup, and and Dave was sort of transitioning into the main role. And, and again, this happened over and over. 2000, I mentioned 2004. I remember that was one of the craziest press conferences I ever covered. That they basically took the final say power away from Wanstead in 2004, gave it to Rick Spielman, but Rick didn't know what was going on. Didn't even have a suit in the office for this press conference. And then Marino was given power over both of them, but didn't know what his job was. And when he was talking to us in the media, was talking about how he had to get home to his wife. That was the kind of scene that was repeating itself over and over with Heisinga, And I do think, to a certain extent, Ross has gotten a bit of a bad rep because it was an extension of a lot of failure for heisinga, So I, I think that Dolphin but I also think for him, it Dolphin. was
0: also how it started. I think his yeah. first impression was not a good one. But I, I do think, you know, when you look at, at what Bob Kraft has set
1: up in New England, it does become, Chris, I think a little bit of sort of a chicken or the egg thing. I mean, do we think of New England ownership as stable and positive and having a clear vision because all of those things are true and that's why they've had success? Or do we think of it in that sense because they happen to draft – the right quarterback in the sixth round and so they've had all this success all these years
0: and hire the right retread coach and and have everything happen from a front office point of view with Pioli and then eventually it transitions into all the people that have come afterwards and then as you said get Brady right because we associate some of these things that we're going to talk about we associate them to the people rather than the players right to these front office people that know what they're doing do you know what you're doing up until the point that you actually find the players that prove it Are, are are there good people in place that it felt for example, you mentioned Rick Spielman. He's one of the he's he's leading a team that right now is in this final four that we're talking about in the Minnesota Vikings. Was he always a good person that that knew what he was doing, or was he in a bad situation that didn't allow him to express that?
1: Well, I, I think I'm going back to Rick's days and I you know I covered those teams and Rick and Dave, uh, Dave Wanstead, had different ideas on players. Um, You go to two of the picks that were really controversial during that period of time. Uh, I remember, and there's no harm in saying this now, I remember being in Rick Spielman's office about a year after the famous uh, selection of Eddie Moore was made instead of Anquan Bolden, and Rick showed me his grades on those two players, and his grade on Eddie Moore was 1.31, which basically, forget the one in the start, but the .31 meant a high third round pick. That was his grade on any more. His grade on Anquan Bolden was a one point one nine, a late first round pick. Dave Wanstead wanted a special teams linebacker. The other coaches in the room were not happy with that selection. So, if they had done what Rick Spielman wanted to do, they would have had a guy who's probably going to end up in the Hall of Fame, a foundational receiver in an Anquan Bolden who just happened to be local, a
0: guy who right. who, who was. It, 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 it always was, burns a little bit more when it's a UM, UF, FSU guy, <laughs> doesn't it?
1: Exactly, and this was also a guy who who played up at Pahokee, played quarterback at the time, but played up at Pahokee. So, this was someone who was fairly familiar. To South Floridians, but they went with any more. You look at the other one, and and this is obviously a name that's going to come up a couple times on this pod. But the decision by Dave Wanstead, while he had final say, to choose Jamar Fletcher over Drew Brees, um, when you already had two elite level cornerbacks in in Sam Madison and in Patrick Sertan, and you end up taking Jamar Fletcher to basically be a slot guy, and we all know that Jamar did not work out here. So I, I do think a lot of it is is circumstantial. It seems like the Dolphins have always been in a situation where maybe they had some of the right people but not the right people together at the right time, and and I think that has happened over and over. And again, you look at Spielman. Has he just gotten better as an executive? Or was he in a situation, as you mentioned, where he was here, you know, with Dave Wansdatt, sort of sharing power? It didn't work very well, and then there were some other circumstances that became involved.
0: Right, and and I think that that's what ends up leading to bad processes, and and we've seen it really. I, I would say until these last couple of years, where even again. If you don't like the outcomes, if you don't like what the Dolphins have done, you know, making the Kiko Alonso byron Maxwell trade, which now has an interesting history, or whatever moves they've made in recent years, at the very least, there is kind of that process that makes sense. And, and I think going forward, it seems like Stephen Ross has it figured out. But let's go on and get to reason number two. Ethan, you, you want to you introduce that one?
1: Yeah, this is a pretty simple one, and this gets back to you know what we're talking about with the Patriots and the Steelers and and some of the continuity that they've had at a particular position. Obviously, quarterback is a huge, huge part of this, and you go back to 1993, Dan Marino entering at that stage, the twilight. Of his career and then you take a look at the number of quarterbacks that the Dolphins have had since 1993 Dan Marino was the quarterback for that period of time through 1999 but then after that Jay Fiedler Damon Huard, Trent Green really of all the quarterbacks that they've had they got decent play out of Fiedler okay although not explosive play and that was coupled with what was at the time very good defense they got one really solid year out of Chad Pennington. And then they got one pretty good year out of Gus Farad. And then we saw, obviously, the transition from Pennington to Henny, who did not work out. And then now we're entering, what is this now going to be, year six, but really five, because of the injury this past season. But that that's obviously is a huge factor in this, is that the Dolphins have not drafted enough quarterbacks over this period of time, like other franchises have, and they have not hit on the quarterbacks that they brought in. And then the other big one, the decision of Dante Culpepper over Drew Brees after the doctors told Saban that Brees had essentially about a 25% chance of a full recovery while Culpepper had a 75% chance of full recovery. And the Dolphins, as we know, went with Culpepper.
0: As Drew Brees probably could have been in this game, which for our purposes would have been much better. From sort of a look at what happened to to look at what's going on, if if Stephon Diggs just steps out of bounds or number forty three for the Saints just uh, just hits Stephon Diggs correctly, maybe we're talking about Drew Brees in a conference championship game. What, what would it have been? 12 years since that decision was made that, that decision was summer or, or winter of 05 if I, if I remember correctly yeah they had gone nine and seven the Dolphins had got nine and
1: seven won their last six games over the previous year and then entered the the off season not feeling obviously that Gus Farad was going to be their long-term answer and had a choice between Breeze and Culpepper traded the second round pick for Culpepper so yeah the uh, the off season after the 2005 season
0: so, to me, the thing the thing that sticks out when you mention the quality performances therein is the lack of long term thoughts about this, or, or frankly, using draft picks in order to solve this problem. And I think it, it does speak to how often this team is trying to make short term fixes. Right? They think, okay, we we have this really quality defense. Let's get you know, the Kirk Cousins of the day or the whomever that just recently performed well of the day in Jay Fiedler or AJ Feely or Joey Harrington or whomever. And it's never, let's try and draft a quarterback in the first round and develop him from day one as our future at quarterback. And it's surprising, given that they've never had the answer at the position, how infrequently they've tried to do that. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp.
1: to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Miami Heat. Well, one of the problems they've had on this is that while they have been you know, mediocre over the past 25 years for the most part, the problem is they, they haven't had, a lot of times they haven't had the high pick to get quarterbacks who, as we've seen, you know, we always have this dance before the draft where uh, nobody likes the quarterbacks in this draft. And then all of a sudden you have three teams trade up to right. get quarterbacks. And then this happened again last year. And, and so, you know, a lot of times you're not in that. You know, the Dolphins have not been in that top 10 space often uh, to take that type of guy and the times that they have been. Uh, they they've chosen not to. You go back to 2008 uh, and the decision to take Jake Long over Matt Ryan and essentially try to fill your quarterback hole in the second round with Chad Henne. Then they, when they take another quarterback in the next year, it's to to run the Wildcat. <laughs> it's not to actually play quarterback. Right. And Pat White in the second round. The decision in 2007 to take John Beck second a second round pick. You know a guy who Cam Cameron and Randy Mueller liked, but yeah, even at the time he was sort of an oldish rookie and it you just weren't clear that he had the physical tools to play that position. So they have they've drafted some guys, but they've made mistakes on the guys they've drafted, they've passed on others. They've just again mistake after mistake after mistake and and really the only really strong season that they've gotten was the Pennington season in in 2008 and you knew that that was not a long-term fix because Chad I think it had already what two 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 shoulder surgeries before he came to Miami. And you uh, know, again, we get back to the quarterback position. And, and this, uh, again, creates this push-pull with Dolphin fans because you look at a guy like Tannehill, on one hand, you're saying, okay, I don't know if he's good enough to take you to the next level. But then you look at it and you say, well, but look at the lack of success we've had at the position. Can we really afford to be as bad as we've been at the positions at, position at times over the past quarter century? And so uh,
0: that that creates a big dilemma there. And it is kind of crazy. You mentioned the fact that they've been always mediocre but never quite bad enough to to, fit, to pick in the top 10. They've only had five top 10 picks in this period that we're talking about. Now, they did, and, and, and this actually can kind of transition us into point number three, they did trade away their first-round picks in 99, 2000, 2002, and 2003. They didn't pick in the first round. They only picked once in the first round between 98 and 04, and that was uh, Jamar Fletcher in 2001. We mentioned that pick earlier. But their top five picks in in this period have been Jake Long at one, Ronnie Brown at two, Deion Jordan at three, Ryan Tannell at eight, and Ted Ginn at nine. Now if you go back to obviously we can we can cover the top three picks. Now the two thousand thirteen pick they traded up for with Oakland, but in that draft in the 2013 draft, the top picks in that draft were offensive linemen, Eric Fisher, Luke Jokel, Lane Johnson. The first quarterback doesn't get taken until E.J. Manuel at 16. So again, we're talking about never having the, the pick in the right year. And then in the 05 draft, the Ronnie Brown draft, Alex Smith goes number one overall, but Aaron Rodgers goes number 24 overall. There's always a couple of flashpoints where you look back and you go, if the Dolphins had just made that pick or made that signing or done the right thing, they would have the quarterback that that the franchise wants and the franchise needs.
1: Well, let me throw this at you, though. Let's say that they, and again, a lot of teams passed on Aaron Rodgers. The question becomes then, though, if you had drafted Aaron Rodgers, does he end up having the same success in Miami that he has had in Green Bay. Is the talent so overwhelming that he would have become this, or is part of this environment, is part of this the fact that he did wait for, what was it, three years uh, behind Brett Favre? I mean, they were at a point where they had to make a decision on Favre or else Rodgers was going to leave without playing for them. Does Rodgers become Rodgers in Miami, or and does Tannehill become something greater if he goes to a more stable organization? I guess those are sort of unknowable uh, answers there, but, but certainly that plays into it too.
0: I I would lead towards yes, um, just because I watch Aaron Rodgers and the throws that he makes and him rolling out to his right and throwing across his body and the precision and everything. But maybe he did learn the position in a unique way that's unique to Green Bay. But I don't know. I I see that kind of overwhelming talent. But we've seen it before with other quarterbacks where someone else in some other city can be doing a pot or in St. Louis that can be five reasons why Jeff Fisher had Case Keenum and Nick Foles. (laughs) They're playing in the NFC Championship game. and We don't have a team anymore. Right, right. So, right, right. <laughs> so um, th- th- there's certainly those kind of butterfly effect things. I would I would lean yes, but th- th- as you said, there are knowable questions. But let's go and get to the next reason. Reason number three, uh, you adequately dubbed it save your failures," and mm-hmm. I think. When, when you look at the the draft picks that we were just talking about and how they didn't have picks for four and five years, um, there's two elements of this. And I'll, I'll, I'll let you tackle the coaching element. I do think that there's also a player element where you turn to players that are going to fix something. When you look at what the Dolphins did with Ricky Williams, and obviously he was deserving, frankly, of that kind of treatment because he was that good of a player. But was he the transformative player of the entire team? You're leaning on one player to change an entire side of the ball. That's just not how football works. I think when you look at the teams that are in the Final Four right now, it's about quality roster, quality units, rather than quality players. And it's, 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 there's too many players on the field for one to make that big of an impact. This isn't basketball. And so when you look at trading away first-round picks, sacrificing your roster depth to go and get Ricky Williams, trading a, a big amount to go and get Brandon Marshall, paying a lot of money to Mike Wallace at receiver, paying a ton of money to and Sue, which they're going to continue to do for the next two years to try and fix your defense, and they were among the bottom in the entire league in run defense for a lot of the time that he's been here. It, It improved last year to 14th from 30, but it did not have the transformative effect one player, the entire team that we talked a lot about when they signed Sue. So we see all the time big free agency classes, big trades to go and try, find the one move that's going to change everything, rather than, and not to sound like Al Golden or the Philadelphia 76ers, the process that's going to lead to quality rosters.
1: But I think also, you go into the, the savior failures in Miami, it also applies to the coaches and, and GMs that they have brought in here, or, or presidents. Three guys, Jimmy Johnson, Bill Parcells, and Nick Saban, uh, who are... You know, all Titans in the field. Right. And there were some uh, people who didn't like the way that Shula was pushed out, but there were there weren't a lot of Dolphin fans at that time who were arguing against going after a guy who not only had won two Super Bowls with the Cowboys, but had had tremendous success here at the University of Miami. And so, I mean, nobody knew that Jimmy was going to check out. Essentially, after a period of time, and Jimmy did some good things. I uh, had two very strong drafts. You know, particularly that first draft where he accumulated a lot of volume and and managed to hit on uh, Zach Thomas. You know, in the fifth round, and then the next year where he hits on Jason Taylor and and Patrick Sertan, and the first year hitting on Sam Madison. I mean, he built the defense, the core, the four best players on his defense he acquired over the course of two drafts. But then Jimmy didn't transition correctly you know after he built the foundation of that team instead of trading up to sort of get the elite guy he ends up taking john avery instead of randy moss right and and saying that larry shannon is going to to be you know as good as randy moss is going to be at that level so that one doesn't work out then you know you you go to sabin um and again there was nobody who was complaining about the sabin hire at the time because not only was he a guy who had tremendous college success but he had nfl experience So he wasn't just coming out of the blue. He knew what he was getting into. And yet when he came to the Dolphins, he tried to control things in a way that he controlled things in college. And not only – it didn't work with the media, but in particular it didn't work with the majority of the players that he had. I mean really he had Jason Taylor on his side and very few others, and he wasn't able – and we've talked about Breeze and Culpepper. He wasn't able to solve – the quarterback situation, and once he realized that he couldn't solve the quarterback situation in Bill Belichick's division and also the fact that his wife hated it here, he bolted. So that one doesn't work out. And then Parcells, who who I think ultimately and, – and having covered that team, uh, I, I think Parcells had – you talk about Jimmy checking out at the end of his Dolphin tenure. I, I think Parcells had checked out pretty close to the beginning of it. I mean, he appointed two guys who'd worked with him in Dallas, in Sperano, and Ireland. But it it never seemed like he was fully engaged other than setting some sort of overarching philosophy. And that philosophy, Chris, was outdated by the time that Parcells tried to implement it. I mean, this was a guy who hadn't won, uh, hadn't been winning playoff games in the previous decade. And then he, you know, he wanted a team that was big and kind of slow, and that was not fit for the for the modern NFL. So three guys who any franchise would have loved to have had when they got them, you can't complain about those decisions like you can, say, hiring a guy like Joe Philbin who didn't call the plays in Green Bay. These all seem like good decisions at the time, but none of those three guys are either invested enough or with it enough with the times to be able to make it work.
0: Yeah, and, and I think the other thing, too, that we can now, as we transition to reason number four— I think a lot of these things that we're talking about are interconnected. So to me, some of these, you know, the the, the savior failure thing, right? So if Nick Saban does have Drew Brees and they build on a nine and seven season and they sign Drew Brees and they make the playoffs and they kick on from there, are we talking about Nick Saban still right now to this day being the coach of the Miami Dolphins? And if there weren 't these failed saviors if one of them had succeeded, would they have had the long term vision and the strategy and Now, as we move to reason number four, the draft and, and we 've talked in the, the draft and the quarterbacking situation are connected, but a lot of these team, a lot of these people haven 't viewed the long term as important enough to preserve the draft and, and really make coherent decisions with draft picks early and late, to, late to, to fill out a roster and early to really set the foundational pieces. When you look at what the Dolphins have done in the draft over the last 25 years, there are so many failures that, I mean, Dolphins fans, those that are hyper-engaged and those that you know watch on Sundays and not much else can name all the names that, that we know that have failed over the course of these 25 years in the draft and they just haven't hit often enough and haven't hit in the right places to really build out a, a, a decent roster.
1: No, and and even when they have been aggressive, like to move up for a guy like Jeff Ireland moves up for Dion Jordan, and number three overall in that draft, and now we're starting to see Dion Jordan resurrect his career, somewhat with Seattle. But obviously, I mean, you you got a guy who's not on your team anymore three years later. Um, that's a horrible, horrible draft pick. And and this again kept repeating itself. Now you look again at you know the most successful drafts that the Dolphins have had. You know, you go back to those two drafts that Jimmy had when he first got. To Miami again; those were foundational drafts. He found, you know, a Hall of Famer and 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 three other defensive players who were Pro Bowl type players over the course of their career. I mean, how many drafts since th- that have the Dolphins had like that? You look at the two Nick Saban drafts, not successful. That 2007 draft, uh, you know, Ted Ginn is still playing. Obviously, a lot of controversy over that draft, but so many mistakes were made in that one. The John Beck decision also so it has been regime after regime that has struggled you take a look at you know i thought dennis hickey had a pretty decent draft but again in, in there there was turnover after that and and one of the things that we we got into here a little bit earlier the lack of continuity that's really played into the draft problem because the dolphins have repeatedly made this decision where they've replaced one member of a regime but not the other you know you go back to the decision ultimately to have Wanstat and spielman together but then to flip their roles, and then to keep Spielman for Saban, even though they had never worked together. And then Sabin brings in Mueller, and Saban leaves, and Mueller stays to work with Cameron. So over and over, you have somebody who hasn't been hired by the other person that they're working Half-pass with. half changes. Exactly, and, 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 and a lack of commitment to just sort of blowing the whole thing up. And I think that has played into the problems on draft day, more than any other. Now, you take a look at my Tannenbaum selections. I think it's too early to give up on certain guys like Xavier Howard early this year did not look particularly good. He got better as the year went on. It looks like they might have found a player in Tankersley on the other side. But even Tannenbaum, it's been, you know, what would you say, at best a mixed bag there in terms yeah, of and, and, and what to he's me,
0: done? And to me, if we're talking about a lot of these things come together, it is the current state of the offensive line. They have Mike Pouncey at center, a first-round pick who they can get rid of, who has chronic injury problems and is never really going to be 100% ever again. You have Juwan James, another previous regime pick, as long as we're talking about previous regimes, a first-round pick who might have been a reach in the first round, they had him at a first round grade, but not a lot of other teams did. You have Laramie Tunsil moved from left guard to left tackle, and that transition hasn't gone brilliantly. And then you're still sitting in the next year thinking, are we bringing Ted Larson back? Are you bringing Jesse Davis, who wasn't even playing football last year, in at right guard and, and cement him at that right guard position? Are you using yet more resources at a position where other quality teams that are well-run can know what they're looking for and find it in the mid-rounds, you know, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth, and every time the Dolphins have tried it, it hasn't worked. And that's what we're talking about in the end, is from 25 years ago to now, they have not figured out what they want, what they're looking for, and have found the right long-term answers to execute that vision. That, frankly, if we're trying to boil this down to a sentence, is that, and it's embodied right now for me most, in the Dolphins' offensive line.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. And and I think if you take a look at some of the other teams here that have had success, and again, the reason we're doing this pod is because it's 25 years as of today that the Dolphins last made an AFC Championship game. You look at the two teams that have made uh, the most AFC Championship games since then, the Patriots 13, the Steelers 9, And you look at all the different offensive lines that they've had throughout the years. Now, the Steelers have had some guys who've been consistent there. I mean, they've had uh, Marquise Bouncey, obviously, has been there at center for a period of time. But the Patriots, they have reshuffled that offensive line over and over and over and let guys go and found other guys to plug in and no not every year has it been successful i think again you take a look at the the two super bowls that the patriots lost to the giants where their offensive line got beat up pretty good in those games but they've been good enough to get to that game and brady being you know so skilled back there and able to get rid of the ball has something to do with it but They've been able. I mean, it's not like the Patriots have had five guys that they lined up. It's not like uh, you know they haven't been like say the Cowboys under Jimmy Johnson, where you know you knew who you know Eric Williams and uh, and that group was together for a long period. Larry Allen, that group was together for a long period of time. Patriots have been able to reshuffle that offensive line, let guys go and move forward. The Dolphins. Have not been able to find any continuity even for a two-year period, and then again they make decisions. You mentioned Juwan James. You know you're talking about another first-round pick uh, who the Dolphins may just decide. I mean that after the way that they played and Jesse Davis played towards the end of the season, do we really need this guy at that number? That shouldn't be a question at this stage of a guy's career when you draft him in the first round. Uh, that should be a cornerstone piece for you right. for and, seven and, or eight years.
0: And it's Olivier Vernon, too. It's second contracts. And that's something mm-hmm. that the Dolphins just don't have a ton of. Guys that they themselves drafted, that they feel are good enough to sign to another deal. Lamar Miller and, and and all those kinds of players that have gone on to other teams. Now, some of those decisions has, have ended up being vindicated, but... Again, there just aren't enough guys that you know are sticking around for the long haul that are the cornerstones of a various position group. A lot of times it does come down to big money,
1: and here we are again, right? Jarvis Landry is coming to the end of his first contract as a, you know, as a second round pick, and is this a guy that you want to commit that kind of money to? And, you know, you're always better off. Brian Wiedemar, the the former president, uh, late Brian Wiedemar, the former president of the Dolphins, used to always talk about that, that the key to succeeding in the NFL was, and he was sort of lamenting the fact that Dolphins hadn't been able to do enough of this during his tenure, but the key to succeeding was getting guys to their second contracts. And again, the Dolphins get guys to that stage and they either decide, okay, we don't want to pay them because they're not worth what they're asking for at this point, or we didn't extend them. Beforehand, Remember, the Dolphins could have extended Vernon before he hit the market. They didn't. Or he's just not good enough, and we don't want to keep that player. And so this has happened over and over. And until the Dolphins break that cycle where there are a number of players that they want to keep beyond their first contract— they're never going to be very good. It's one thing to say that the Steelers and Patriots know when to give up on guys, and I think that's been part of their success too. I mean, the Dolphins keep signing former Steelers, right? And you keep being disappointed with the results of the former Steelers that they get, right? right. Lawrence, Lawrence yeah. Timmons is the latest example. Uh, Mike Wallace, Joey Porter had one really good year with the Dolphins. Was he ultimately worth the trouble? Probably not. Uh, but I mean, the they, Patriots have They Steelers, made
0: this game they were talking about nine times. You might as well try and, try and steal some of their ideas, but it doesn't seem to be working.
1: No, and again, you can pick up their players uh, at that point. But what what are they? What is their value once they've hit the age that the Dolphins have acquired those players? And so again, Joey Porter was later in his career, Lawrence Timmons later in his career. Want to get to the fifth reason here that the Dolphins have not been in the AFC Championship game in 25 years, dating back to a loss against the Bills in 1993. Again, one of only four teams in the AFC that that's the case for. And that fifth reason is very simply the Patriots being in the Patriots. Division, because with the exception of the year that Brady got hurt, 2008, and the Patriots went 11 and 5 with Matt Castle, and the Dolphins ended up winning the division on a tiebreaker. The problem is you have this juggernaut in your division, and without winning a division, you're not able to then get a home game in the playoffs, uh, even if you make it. And so the Dolphins, I mean, haven't made the playoffs enough times for this to necessarily matter. But the fact is, they have not—they've not been in a spot either where it's you just you get to the you know you get to the postseason, you get a bye or you get a first-round home playoff game, and you end up advancing to the AFC Championship that that way. The Dolphins are—I mean, the Patriots are always in the way, Chris.
0: Yeah, and I, when you look at the the quality of competition, it it also does kind of again we're talking about the interconnectivity of all these things. When you go back to Savior failures, I think. The reason why the Dolphins have taken some of the big swings, whether it's in free agency or for front office executives or for coaches, is if you're Wayne Huizenga in 2004 – you're watching the Patriots win two Super Bowls in three years, they're on the way to winning a third and four uh, and and you, you know that they're going to be a formidable opponent, when you bring in Nick Saban, when you bring in Pill Parcells when you sign in Dominick and Sue when you make big trades, it's because you know, okay, the only way that we're going to try and catch up with these people is if we do something big, is if we do something at the level of the Super Bowl and that's where it can kind of lead you astray is if you take big swings, they better hit or else You're setting yourself back, not just in terms of losing that period of time, but losing a longer period of time, which is what's ended up happening. No question. And,
1: you know, some of the swings they took have made a lot of sense, as we've said. What if, again, if Nick Saban ends up with Drew Brees, if Drew Brees turns into what he was with New Orleans? We don't know if that's the case either. He seemed to have sort of a symbiotic relationship with with Sean Payton since he's gotten there. But if the Drew Brees thing works out, then maybe the Dolphins are in position with Saban you know, Saban, I think, was what two and two over those two years against the Patriots. Um so he was his teams at least were competitive with the Patriots over those over those couple of years. You know, maybe you're in a position where you can steal a division here once once or twice with ten or eleven wins, and then you end up in a position where you can get to an AFC championship game. But because again, all of these Things have not worked out. I mean, you would have figured that bringing in Bill Parcells, who obviously was, you know, very familiar with Bill Belichick, you know, if you want to beat a guy in that division, that was certainly a good way to go. But as we mentioned, the Parcells thing didn't work out. And so, you know, over and over, they've sort of been snakebit in that way. And the Patriots just continue with Brady as the mainstay while totally revamping the defense, while losing coordinators, while revamping the offensive line. I mean, the Patriots receivers have changed over and over over the years, right? I mean they've really only had, you know, one guy who was clearly elite in Randy Moss and the rest of these guys have sort of turned into really good receivers. I think Brandon Cooks is is uh, you know one exception for that. A, A guy who I think pretty good on his own. But the Patriots, you know, have you know gotten guys gotten production out of guys like Welker and Edelman and et cetera. They've continued to turn this thing over, but they've stayed at such a level that the Dolphins have just not been close. And so there, there isn't a situation like say we've seen in the AFC South in the past you know few years where you know again maybe you can get in with nine wins uh, and and host a playoff game. It's just not going to happen in the AFC East with the Patriots there.
0: And as we now get to the uh, segment of this podcast that if it were written in press would be we reached out to the Dolphins for comment. Uh, <laughs> it, it would be this. Stuff is really hard. I I, I almost want to curse because this is a podcast, but we don't want that explicit rating. This bleep is really hard. And you look at the other teams that have sort of failed. We mentioned the three other teams that haven't, haven't made the AFC Championship in this time, they being the Bengals, the Texans, and the Browns. But you look at the Bills once. Uh, they just ended a 17 year playoff drought. The Chiefs once they just had another seismic failure and they're, and they're going to to sort of look around and figure out what's going on. The Titans just fired their coach after making it to the second round to the eve of this game. The Chargers have switched locations, have had any number of high profile failures. The Raiders had you know a, a decade where they couldn't figure, figure out what they were doing. They look like they're on the right track, now again hiring John Gruden. The Jags have been the joke of the AFC and yet have made it three times. That more being in, in in the 90s than now. The Jets, it's not like they have any shortage of, of situations where they're being made fun of for. So it's really only the Ravens, the Broncos, the Steelers, and the Patriots. The Colts have had Peyton Manning and, and looked really solid in the Ursay and Manning era now have failed Andrew Luck quite a bit, and, and he made the championship game in his third season. But It's really only those four teams, the Ravens, the Broncos, the Steelers, and the Patriots that have been the class of this conference over the course of those 25 years and have consistently done the things that we're talking about. So it's not easy to find the right people. It's not easy to find the right players. It's not easy to have a coherent draft strategy that works year in and year out because it's a very unscientific process and... The Dolphins have just not gotten it right. And as we look now towards the next 25 years, where hopefully we see them in in that championship game a a few more times, hopefully they figured some of those things out.
1: Well, and here's the question. You take a look at the other three teams that have not made it. The Browns, the Bengals, the Texans, and the Dolphins. Which team, in your view, is closest?
0: The Texans, because they have number two, which is the quarterback, Watson.
1: I I agree. I agree. I, I think the Browns... Uh, obviously, coming off 0 and 16 or 1 and 31, made a lot of changes to their front office, and they've kind of gone the uh, Philadelphia 76ers route, where they're going to have a lot of high picks. I would we'll rank them second. I would out. rank
0: them second, by the way, just by virtue and, of having all those picks. And you would put the Bengals fourth behind the Dolphins tied for third because <laughs> I mean they're they're basically in the same spot that the that the Dolphins are in right now in terms of having a quarterback that they don't know about they more recently built a really good roster they built a really good roster from like the 11 to 2014 period but it's kind of been difficult to keep together and now they're they're also chopping and changing with the front office and we're thinking about getting rid of their coach but they, they've had the uh, the consistency and the continuity part just maybe with the wrong person in Marvin Lewis
1: I would maybe put the Dolphins uh, ahead of them, but I would agree with you. I think the Texans are best positioned. We see what Deshaun Watson did here in half a season and and clearly getting J.J. Watt back, that they will be better positioned for it going forward. But 25 years is a long, long time. That's a lot of pain for Dolphin fans, and uh, it's not clear that it's going to end next season. All right, Chris, well, uh, on this solemn occasion, thanks for joining me for this. Really appreciate it. And we will talk to you soon.